uh, by the ineluctable power of my space phone, it is 3.30. Uh, this is the, uh, the Lost Carcosa panel. Um, if you are lost, and not in a Carcosan sense, uh, no shame in that game, scampered of wherever you thought you were in the first place. Um, my name is Kenneth Height, I'm the moderator, which by my reading means I shall try to shut up and let the other panelists mostly talk. But uh, uh, if they do not uh, jump and entertain you like uh, dancing uh, monkeys, then it is my job to either make them dance or to say increasingly outrageous things until they reject <laughs> my heresies with one point. I, I was told there would be no dancing required. <laughs> it's not required as long as you keep everyone entertained. <laughs> so it's on you, really. Uh, anyway, I will let my uh, uh, esteemed panelists introduce themselves and perhaps, uh, in addition to your uh, vast bodies of work, say the most Carcosan relevant thing or things that has brought you to this sorry state. So Pete, you want to start us off? Sure, um, Pete Rowling. I'm sorry. Was there an outrage in the back? I was about to say, how insane have you all gone? <laughs> I, I didn't get that. How insane have you all gone? You know, it's it's Friday, so I'd say 20%, give or take. <laughs> I mean, besides structural stuff, obviously Pete, you know, has an advantage there. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, because I, you know, I'm, I'm legally and clinically insane. Well, you're a Florida man. Literally. Yeah, I am a Florida man, but not by birth. I transplanted in 85. Yeah, that's, that's even worse. Yeah, I chose to be there. Yeah. Uh, I'm Pete Rollick, um, writer of many things. Um, my Carcosan creds include In the Court of the Yellow King, uh, The Sepia Prince, Sepia Prince, depending on where you are, and um, I edited The Chromatic Court, which tried to bring more of the, of the mythos into Carcosa, for good or ill. <laughs> Uh, my name is Curtis M. Lawson. I have uh, written uh, for Hippocampus Press, Weird House Press, um, and I edit Weird House Magazine. As far as my Carcosan cred goes, I had a story called The Supreme Essence of Art in Under Twin Suns, an alternate history of the yellow sign. I think that's the whole title. Is that right, Jim? That's correct. <laughs> Which yes. Jim edited. Um, and I've also written some things that are inspired by Carcosa but aren't quite Carcosa, including a story called Elvis and Isolde and a story called Pinocchio and the Black Pantheon. I'm Jim Chambers. Uh, as Curtis mentioned, I edited an anthology published by Hippocampus Press called Under Twin Suns, Alternate Histories of the Yellow Sign. And it was nominated for a Bram Stoker Award, which is very nice. Um, I also write a lot of short fiction novellas and comics and graphic novels. I uh, won a Bram Stoker Award for writing Kolchak, The Night Stalker, The Forgotten Lore of Edgar Allan Poe. And I have uh, some short story collections out recently on the night border, which includes my uh, take on an alternate history of the yellow sign, um, a, a sort of a sequel to the repair of reputations, and uh, on the Hierophant Road. Hi, I'm Oscar Rios. I'm president of Golden Goblin Press. I'm an uh, author, uh, editor of uh, weird RPG fiction. I have a scenario called Poetry Night and Stygian Foxes. Uh, fierce sharp little needles, and I am the author of the campaign Ripples from Carcosa. And I'm a full-time uh, game designer primarily. My Carcosa cred comes from uh, almost 
entirely my uh, annotated edition of Robert W. Chambers' original collection, King and Yellow, which I did for Art Dream. Uh, so look that up if you have. So for one brief eight-month window, I knew more about Robert W. Chambers than anyone in the world. <laughs> that window was in 2019. I hope you were there for it. All right. Um, these uh, sorts of panels have sort of a, a, a pedagogical purpose as well as a get everyone fighting purpose. So we're going to try and get a little of the 101 out of the way, but also maybe a little fighting. Um, so to start with, uh, the name Carcosa originates with Ambrose Bierce in the short story Inhabitant of Carcosa. How does Bierce use it and what does it mean? And for extra credit, if you'd like to take a stab in the rich tradition of where did Bierce get the name from, uh, let's see uh, if anyone's got uh, Roots ideas out there. I'm going to pass. All right. <laughs> <laughs> my, my exposure to uh, The King in Yellow came from uh, Kevin Ross's Have You Seen the Yellow Sign. I'm primarily an RPG Carcosa guy, so I'm the odd man out of this esteemed panel. But I'm just going to represent the tabletop crowd. <laughs> But that, that's, I mean, that's a great question that you asked that I think none of us know the answer to. Is where, <laughs> <laughs> where did Beers get the idea? I don't think that's a oh, oh, perfect question. Wow. Well, maybe the, did, did you know more about it than anybody else? Well, you knew about Chambers, oh, not Beers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, we could take a stab to say that because of the, the nature of an inhabitant of Carcosa, the story deals with death. And it opens with a quote uh, attributed to, I think, Holly or the Book of Holly about different types of death that Carcosa could be a play on the word carcass. That would be my guess. Nice. Um, I, I just think it sounds really cool when you whisper it, like Carcosa. I'm not sure that Ambrose Beer's ASMR is a thing. We'll be tomorrow. That's my best guess. Right. <laughs> Suitable surroundings, indeed. <laughs> Isn't Carcosum one of the names for those the, the, that city and temple carved out of sandstone in the middle of the desert? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is a thesis that Beers took the idea from Petra, which had been That's, yeah. dug uh, up and was being explored not just archaeologically but in poetry at the time. And there is a Hellenistic city to the north of Petra in Syria called Carcusa. Okay. Which, who knows? Um, I should also mention people like to say Carcassonne is maybe where it came from, the city in France, uh, also the subject of a Danzani story. Um, I personally think it's him messing with the words Contra Costa County because he very much implies in the original version of the story, which he published in a San Francisco newspaper, that it's just a city in, in California in the infinite future and that everything that we do. Uh, today in uh, prosperous 1890s California will be forgotten and half remembered and that that's uh, his Beersian joke on it. Uh, but I, I, I agree with what you're saying that it is fundamentally a meditation on death, right? That that's what the story yes. has yeah. Having established that, we now move to our man, Robert W. Chambers. And uh, what, uh, what, do, what do we think Chambers does with Bierce's word with the concept is it literally just a matter of him saying cool word and running off and using it in an entirely different way is there a continuity between the carcosas um 
is there a sense in which we can actually talk about a Carcosa, or is it just everyone's Carcosa for themselves in raid chambers? Uh, I, I think that with Carcosa, as far as how chambers probably start, or my best guess, is that the inhabitant of an inhabitant of Carcosa is this death story, and Chambers Carcosa is this lost, cursed place. So I think he was thinking of the the very basic idea of find, going back to this place that was once great that you knew and is now this place of death, and just took it to this other level and this completely lost place out of time, out of space, out of dimension, um, and just took that theme of death a little bit further. So, so beyond the death of an individual, the, the death of, say, a city or the or empire culture, that su yes. supported it. You know, I, I always think of, look, it's because it's, it's, it's my, my pop culture childhood, the Skeksis from Dark Crystal. Super Carcosa, right? They've got this massive castle, and there's like, what, six of them? And it's just being run like they still have power, and like they still have this vast empire, and they still want to believe that, and they have all the soldiers and the finery and the me mechanics of that, but there's really nothing there. And to me, that's Carcosa. You've got this empire that was once vast, it is now nothing but the few people that still cling to power. So, so it's the emptiness. Yes. It is. Yeah. James, you want to speak up for your uh, namesake? Sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't speak for him, obviously, but... Uh, <laughs> okay, I know for a fact that he thought... No. Um, it, it's, yeah, there's, you can certainly make like a thematic extension that he's taking the idea that Bierce's story presents and adding... Uh, adding new elements to it, extending the exploration of what happens after a civilization dies, what's left, what's what's lingering, and um, so I, I mean I think that's pretty consistent with what Pete and Curtis are saying. Okay, I, I think um, more from an RPG standpoint, but for 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 all, it's funny that the way the authors take Carcosa is the way Carcosa takes Carcosa. Authors take Carcosa and they make it what they want it to be. And every author's, their Carcosa is a little bit different. So the literary Carcosa is kind of a chaotic place. And for me, the city of Carcosa is kind of a chaotic place. For me, the city, you know, and a lot of the, the RPG fiction, the, the Carcosa is a growing city and it's made up of, of forgotten, lost places. like. Uh, an empire falls, a city falls, a mining town is, is you know, the mine dries up and everyone moves away. There's this, a town in the Midwest destroyed by a hurricane. All of those places can be absorbed into Carcosa. It's like Carcosa can be like the bottom of the black hole. That all of these lost, forgotten, doomed places eventually end up there and then suddenly change and morph and become more alien uh, as just the kingdom of Carcosa grows. So not just abandonment, but alienation right. would be something that you could draw out of that. So he collects ghost animals. Hmm? He collects ghost animals. It's chaos. It could collect whatever you want it to be, as long as it's a forgotten place with no other place to be. Are you saying Carcosa is where my lost socks go? <laughs> Only the yellow one. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, uh, given that we are uh, basically here solely because of the power of the word Carcosa, um, I thought we might just do a little quick round and, you know, there are no wrong answers uh, to, you know, what comes to your mind, how would you use, what's your take on the other sort of cool chambersy words uh, that he throws in, including the ones that he borrows from beer. So like the Lake of Holly, uh, we know that it has cloud waves. That's about it. Um, Carcosa is on its shores, probably. Uh, do we have any other thoughts about the Lake of Holly? Do we have uh, things that pop to mind? Uh, I always picture the reflection of black stars upon it. Mm -hmm. um, so these almost like pinholes upon the lake. That yeah, always comes to the, my mind. The visual quality of it, yes. reflecting the already reflected or negative heaven. Yes. Yeah, I think the other places and even the um, the names of them uh, for me have always evoked just a sense of uh, barrenness. It's the remnants of a place that was once lush and full of life, and this is all that's left is this desolate lake, this desolate sky with black stars, and it's this empty forgotten city and they sort of seem like the uh, the, the landmarks of desolation I, I I also think that the lake could represent the emptiness of tranquility it's almost like you've got the city with the royal family at each other's throats and being petty for no apparent reason on the shore of this just black peaceful placid lake almost you know mocking the chaos with its tranquility any thoughts on Yatil or um, uh, Noah Talpa or Thael or Alar or is uh, at, so, at some point is is Chambers just uh, you know teaching Lovecraft how to list cool words? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's like the Scrabble bag. You <laughs> pull the letters out. I'm going to make something out of this. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder if Chambers intended much specifically behind a lot of what goes into sort of the Carcosa mythology because it's so sparsely delivered in the stories and there's so you know it's it's really meant more to be evocative to make you think of a place to spark the imagination in the reader than I think to describe a specific you know place with specific attributes so I think it's part of both I think it's a little of like let's just throw out some cool names and but it, it, there's a there's a method to it. There's a th thoughtfulness to it that is designed to get your brain sort of wondering. Well, what is this place? What what are its qualities? And I, I would add on that. I th I think that just coming from the way that I tell stories and my my understanding of the King in Yellow, how it is so sparsely um, the mythology is so sparsely populated, so to speak, um, and not very fleshed out. That having just having these names be these cool things, not trying to draw from existing etymology, it adds to the mystery of the King and Yellow and Carcosa, that there is no real um, existing meaning behind these words. You know? I, might, I might throw out the notion that um, uh, Chambers, being a visual artist, being a painter, by you know, uh, training at least, if not by instinct, um, in these early stories that are written as he's painting in Paris or right after he's come back, he's a commercial artist still in Greenwich Village, um, that uh, he's using them more as a motif, an artistic motif, than he is as, you know, our sort of 
nerd universe, you know, oh, this is part of a lore, this is part of a backstory. We're all going to get, you know, a Netflix miniseries to go <laughs> if we're just patient. Um, that he's not doing that. It's like, it, it's the, you know, bat in the corner of the painting or the angel, you know, on the gravestone. It, 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 it's there to symbolize the thing, to create, as you said, it, an emotional reaction, but not as a signpost that he's going to then, you know, write several anthologies about it. That that it leaves to us. Um, does that sound like a good takeaway? Anybody? It is. Yeah. It's, it's a good takeaway. I've actually used Aldanis and right. uh, Ifill in my stories. Um, Aldanis, to me, has been always been Prince Charles. He's the rightful heir right. to the throne, but he also knows that he's never going to get there <laughs> at, at all. You know that is the way it's going to be. He he's he's stuck. And then Ifill has always been for me the the uh, court usurper. Right. He's going to betray the rightful emperor or the king in yellow, and he's going to take his, he's not going to take his place, he's going to put the pretender on the throne. Right. That is his job, and that is his job in the court. And, and this is my interpretation of a word right. that's used once. <laughs> well, it's, it's used twice, but it's used in the same sentence both times. Yes. The scallop tatters of his rope will hide Yatil forever. Yeah. That was it. That's all we have on Yatil. <laughs> but I, I love that, that analogy that it's a motif, like an artistic yes. visual motif yeah. in words. Uh, that's, that really seems to capture, if not his intent, at least the effect that the, uh, that the writing has. It kind of reminds me of what Lewis Carroll did with like the Jabberwocky. Mm -hmm. Like you don't know what it is, but you don't you know you don't want to encounter it. Yes. Like the blade goes, you know, this what is it, the Snickersnack blade? Yeah, the Warple blade. The Warple Snickersnack. Blade. Yeah. You you know, you, the word itself doesn't have any meaning, but you know what that word means. Right. All right. Um, because this is the Lovecraft Festival, we're going to talk about Lovecraft on Carcosa. And then I promise we're going to get to the fun part. <laughs> so just one more dose of vegetables before we get to dessert. There's a fun part? Yeah, there is a fun part. Um, in supernatural horror and literature, Lovecraft reads Carcosa as akin to one of his own vanished countries, which I think is what you mentioned, Oscar, that everyone yeah. reads their own self into Carcosa. Uh, tying it to a sort of racial memory, the nameless yellow sign, says Lovecraft, handed down from the accursed cult of Hastur, from primordial Carcosa, whereof the volume treats, and some nightmare memory of which seems to lurk latent and ominous at the back of all men's minds. And again, he refers to Carcosa as the eldritch land of primal memory. And again, that seems like a very Lovecraft thing to think. Um, and we've sort of been dancing around it. So, are, are we, see, there we are. Did Pete, you want to no, say just, that Lovecraft's full or not full? Yeah, he's full of shit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he, he read what he wanted to read into that, just yeah. like we all do, and, we all, and then we run with it. What, you know, and, but he didn't run that far with it. He just dro name drops a couple times, mm -hmm. and he's done with it. Derelict. <laughs> it, it's like he grabbed the bone and you know, was two furlongs down before anybody said stop. Anyway, but yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, it's I, it's completely not my take on it. Um, you know, I would disagree with Lovecraft's assessment of it. Um, but that's fair. That's what we're all doing as as you know, contemporary writers, editors, creators. To, you know, delving into Chambers' original work is we're bringing our own perspective to it, we're making of it what we want, and it's, it's 
kind of a literary rarity, those stories, in the way that they are so open to interpretation and yet still co co interpretation that is somehow cohesive, you know, part of like this larger exploration of um, what was set out in just a handful of stories. So I think Lovecraft is entitled to his opinion. And, and interestingly, I mean, this is, I think, one of the, either the magic of Carcosa or the magic of worrying at any symbol, is that we can immediately say, well, Lovecraft just being Lovecraft, but also his eldritch land of primal memory that lurks at the back of human uh, thought absolutely can tie into Carcosa as the land of the dead, as Carcosa as the great abandon, as Carcosa as the remnant. All of the Carcosas that we've each of us sort of begun to hint at, Lovecraft's Carcosa can not, you know, not even with a big stretch, can cover those. Right. And I think that is sort of the real uh, unanswerable and therefore fun question is, you know, how does, uh, how does something that is literally, as you say, a tossed off expression, mm -hmm. um, why does that still captivate us? And no one gives a crap about, you know, whatever Nixon Dialis was making up, right? I, I, I think with, when it comes to cosmic horror in general, but I think the, the you know, Carcosa mythology in particular, it, it's basically a fanfic, and every author has their own take, and we all get to be right, and we all get to be wrong. But when it comes to Carcosa, I mean, there's a great Star Trek line, um, you know, what was the lies and what was true, uh, and you know, he says it was all true. And they go even the lies, and the answer is especially the lies. <laughs> um, when it comes to Carcosa, everything's right, everything's wrong, because in in our minds it just embodies whatever we want it to be. It, it's you know the essence of, of a palace of chaos where anything is possible and nothing matters. And I will say on the Lovecraft interpretation of it, if you look at it in a metaphorical sense, it, it almost reminds me of, I think in the introduction to Weave World, Clive Barker is talking about the idea of Paradise Lost. And um, that could be, if you take Lovecraft's words in a more metaphorical sense of this, this racial memory, these, these lost things, um, like humankind has always had this like, yearning for this paradise lost idea you know whether it's the garden of eden or or whatever you know idea of some empire even if it's just like oh the 1950s were the best time ever you know we have this this paradise lost thing and i think that carcosa can tie into that you know once again this this big mighty empire that's gone that that some are still yearning for well and you and you see that with well because chambers is writing this in paris um 1800s, 1890s? 1890s, yeah. And, 93 you know, and 5. It's Paris, France is sort of a decayed empire mm -hmm. at this point. It's, we're on the verge of World War I. There's lots of stuff going on. This, at the same time, the, the people that brought us Ubu Roy are formulating that as well. Yeah, Alfred Jerry literally gets to Paris six months before Chambers leaves it. Yeah. yeah. So there's something going on in Paris that is talking about the failure of empire. And it's, it's a subject of lots and lots of, of different literature and art and music. 
So something's going on there that, that Chambers hooks on to, but instead of writing it in French, she writes it in English and brings it back to us, or, or brings, comes back and gives us that. So it's, it's all these things. And, and of course, famously, another one of the great stories in The King in Yellow is the uh, Street of the First Shell, which is about the end of the Franco-Prussian War, which literally <laughs> destroys the French Empire. Right. right. So, yeah. you know, this is not a tendentious reading at all. No. It might be. Um, well, the tendentious readings are perfectly allowed. <laughs> On the topic of tendentious readings, um, what what is your personal Carcosa? Not necessarily your favorite Carcosa, although you could also do that if you have a, a big, uh, you know, love for John Tynes' Carcosa or something. But we, I guess it's two questions, and answer both of them at your leisure in, in sequence or in parallel. Uh, how do you use Carcosa, and how do you, and what did you see someone else use Carcosa and say, ah, that really, that really sings to me? All right, I'll go. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I see Carcosa is, is symbolic of loss, and... Uh, both physically and symbolically, and the, the concepts of entropy and ruin, um, in like the most tragic and romantic ways. So, um, in in the story I did, the supreme essence of art, the the character sees Carcosa as this this place with colors that don't exist in the world, and all all this beauty that is, that is bygone um, that he seeks to capture. So, I always view it as this this kind of cursed place that's, that's drawing you in with yearning and um, will probably destroy you, but you still desire it. Um, and then kind of parallel to that, something that I've loved, um, you know, in uh, Joe Pulver's Carl Lee and Casilda, um, I've, I've loved, I'm probably butchering that name, but is it Casilda, is that how you pronounce Casilda's it? Home. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, it, it's similar, you have this, this guy who's Who's chasing this this character? The you know this image that he has in his mind, um, and I love almost that siren song element of Carcosa. I, I, my take on Carcosa, I mean the Carcosa I most love is I hate to say it, um, the Delta Green versions of yeah. Carcosa, mm -hmm. the ones that are entropy and uh, chaos and you know the existentialism of it. Um, I love. The concept of um, there's a, a fake creature called the Ellen Chi, and it's the bane of bards. It's that primal force that very creative people lead very short and tragic lives for some reason. That they just spiral into whatever chaos and ruin. And I love that Carcosa and the mythology of Carcosa involves plays and poetry and music and paintings. Um, you know, art galleries, that sort of thing. I love the connection between art and doom and the beauty of it and knowing that you're doomed but the art is so beautiful you're still drawn to it like a, a moth to a candle flame. To me, that's my Carcosa. That's, that's where Carcosa lives for me. Yeah, I think my take really think about it that my, my take on Carcosa is is perhaps more tied to the king in yellow in the sense that Carcosa is a place that has experienced the king in yellow uh, who is sort of this cosmic entity uh, that somehow came to Carcosa and Carcosa's current state is a result of the king in yellow 
and the king in yellow is you know I've always kind of read that that persona that that idea as as a as a thing that has a certain naivete in the sense that it didn't really want to waste and desolate Carcosa, but it can't help but do that wherever it goes. And so Carcosa is what's left after a place, after a world, after a society adopts sort of the ideas or the concepts or the presence of the King in Yellow. And the play, The King in Yellow, is his attempt to move on to another place where he can make friends and Spread. You know, and spread and slowly friends friends you know they were his friends and then after a certain amount of time he's like why have all my friends died why have all the cities died <laughs> um, so that's kind of my my personal take on it um, I used that in in uh, one of the, the one the sequel to the not sequel but follow on story to the repair of reputations that I wrote that was my take on what was happening um, and I think it's a little bit it maybe is kind of literal in a sense, compared to some of the more conceptual takes, I like the idea of entropy, of chaos, as sort of a place that absorbs forgotten places that can become kind of anything. Um, but I've always seen, like, I, I've pictured that the, the world described in the play is what Carcosa was like, this beautiful world with royalty and balls and, and you know, all sorts of vibrant uh, you know, culture going on, and it's now just a blasted waste. But even in the play, there was this undercurrent of rot betrayal between the royal family. Well, he, it was a facade. He had he had to have a way in. Yeah, <laughs> that was the crack. That's it. Oh, is it me? Oh, sorry. Um, so I've used Carcosa a couple times. One of my early stories was in the court of the Yellow King, um, where I kind of used. I it was a sci-fi anthology, so I took everything I loved about that one scene in Dune the, where the, 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 um, the Spacing Guild brings in the, the navigator and they're going to talk to the, the Emperor but instead of the, within plans. yes <laughs> right the, but this is this is the court right yes. so you've got like deep ones and, and, and Migo running around and snickering to each other as, as the, the humans are bringing in their prize this huge black lozen, uh, loz, loz, say lozenge, lozenge. Thank you. <laughs> I haven't had enough alcohol today. Um, well, it could have gone all kind of directions, so I yeah, didn't sure. want to make sure what yeah, no. huge and, black thing they're bringing in. And you know, the king in yellow, who is an avatar of Hastor, is sitting there with his his mask on, because he's not really Hastor, and he's not really the king in yellow. He is the caretaker. He wears the mask. Right. Um, so. And the humans are coming in. It's like, please, would you take the, the curse, the, the yellow sign off Earth, so we can go back to being a normal planet? And here, as an offering, we'll give you, I don't know, the daughter of Cthulhu. And you know, see, so she comes out, and you know, it's like, oh, hey, cousin. And you know, but it's so that's one way I've used it as sort of this 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 imperial court that you can visit, but you really don't want to, and really bad stuff happens, and it changes the course of the universe. Um, other types, I, I used it as very Gormenghast kind of thing. I did the afterword for uh, a Joe Pulver collection, and I sort of had um, people go out onto the Lake of Holly, and they had to make a blood sacrifice because you have to appease the lake before you travel on it, things like that. Mm -hmm. 
but a very Gormenghast thing where it's all high and gothic and there are rules, so you have to follow the rules. Um, it, but more recently, what I really liked is that I wrote this story called The Sepia Prince, which is about a guy who discovers that there's a, they, at, they but once put on a play of The King in Yellow in the Opera Populaire. But it wasn't The King in Yellow, and there was cut scenes that included another character, the Sepia Prince, who was an uh, avatar of Cthulhu. Um, I really liked that. I played with it a lot. And somebody came to me and said, can we do a whole bunch of stories about this idea of that there are other colored avatars for the various mythos monsters? And I'm like, yeah, this, sure, why not? Let's do this. And um, we did a whole bunch of these, and I can't, for the life of me, I can't remember the author's name, but he made uh, uh, Clark Ashton Smith's uh, monster, Quichala uh, Utatis, the Treader in the Dust. He made that, that guy he, the Duke of Rust. And he, he's, his uh, art motif is um, tattoos. So the tattoo literally spreads through your body as rust. As you become the avatar for Quichal Utatis. Literally getting tetanus. Yes. <laughs> but it's such a good story. And it's, uh, it, it, I was just happy that I had some part in its creation. Um, the, the notion of adapting Carcosa uh, or The King in Yellow specifically to the needs of the anthology is. I mean, I, I think that in honor of Robert W. Chambers, we should certainly address the fact that we're writing these in many cases to sell. Um, so uh, my story, uh, La Musique de l'Ennui, which is the crossover between the Phantom of the Opera and the Yellow King mythos that you didn't know you needed, um, in uh, Madness uh, on the Orient Express collection from Chaosium, is uh, because the whole remit is, this is cool stuff that happens on the Orient Express, and so my uh, Yellow King, my Carcosa, represents the toxic power of nostalgia. That uh, my, my heroine is a gigantic Phantom of the Opera fan who wants nothing more than to go back into 1910, into the 1890s, into the Belle Epoque, and live in Phantom of the Opera world, because her own life is a ruin. And that it's uh, a lot of what people have been saying other panelists have been saying that the notion that it's this attraction that draws you, this siren figure. Uh, and then I, because I'm me, I got to play around with the actual life history of Gaston LaRue and the actual uh, uh, fun coincidences that occur around the year 1907. Feel free to read the book. But the uh, notion that it's this desire for something dead is uh, was to me a very powerful component of the of the Yellow King mythos and of Carcosa, and the note, and because Chambers in his stories very clearly makes them about love and death, Eros and Thanatos. That's what they're about, and it's a contest or a marriage or a hate fuck between them <laughs> that uh, drives that anthology or drives that collection. Um, and so that's sort of what I made my uh, story about, and. I might write another story uh, if I had a different market for it or a different reason to do it and do it in, in Pete's notion of the, the yellow king is a interface or a reticle through which you read the mythos. Or I might do it, you know, Oscar style where uh, Carcosa is 
entropy and, and chaos and we're, you know, uh, everything that gets jumbled up, the opposite of nostalgia, right? The things that are totally forgotten and no one cares become Cartagosa. And all of those I think would be valid and I think what we've sort of picked up is that many roads lead to Carcosa, to paraphrase somebody or other, um, and that any road you take can be a, a an interesting and an extremely wild one. Um, and, you know, to, to close it out, because no one has mentioned True Detective, I will, um, uh, that True Detective is all the way back around to, that's a cool name, I'm going to steal it. So in a way, True Detective is the most Chambers-esque use of Carcosa <laughs> ever. Because um, he originally wrote about the stone city of the Cypress Court, was in the, uh, Nick Pazzolato's first draft of uh, True Detective. And then he read uh, Chambers and he said, oh, Carcosa and Yellow King are much better. I'm going to use those. And that became you know, uh, True Detective uh, Part 1. And you know whether it worked as a as a uh, crime story, whether it worked as a piece of uh, philosophy, as a ripoff of Thomas Ligotti, that's a whole different argument. But I think that we can agree using Carcosa because it's a much cooler name than what you had in the first place is absolutely true to the spirit of Carcosa. <laughs> sure. Oh yeah. Does, does anyone have any thoughts on True Detective before we open it up? Uh, because that is the the, the you know. Uh, my mysterious uh, uh, twin mooned elephant in the room, right? Yeah, I guess, I, I mean, in a way, it sort of seems like a valid Carcosa story. I don't think, you know, if you, you, you watch, I've watched it a couple of times, and I, I did enjoy it. By the time you get to the end of that, you're, you've gotten this sense that Matthew McConaughey's character is maybe not an entirely reliable yeah, <laughs> right. And that's a very Chambers idea because yeah. the repair of reputations is built on an unreliable narrator. So I think in that sense, it plays with the, the ideas of madness, the themes of reality, perception in a very Chambers way without necessarily having the supernatural aspect that he has in some of the stories. That's my two cents. <laughs> One of the things, I, so I own the DV, I watched a... Uh, True Detective, the first season on HBO. Loved it, absolutely adored it. Went out, loved it so much, I bought the DVD set and I've never watched it again. <laughs> and I think that's because I, in the walk, look, I, there's some great imagery in there. There's hidden stuff everywhere. If you go back and look at it, there's like, the, the one girl, is she's got a sweater and it's black stars on the yellow background. There's little great things that travel through the whole system. But I don't think, as I aged, that it bears watching again. I think it, it's a one-shot pony. Does that make, make sense? That you get a thrill out of it, but there's no reason to go back and watch it again. You may want to, but you will just never, you will always find something better to do. <laughs> well, I've, I actually have watched it. That's, <laughs> that's very carcosa. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say that I, I, I enjoyed it. I actually haven't finished it. Like, I enjoyed what I watched, <laughs> but I haven't finished it. I decided that I, everybody's been talking. So my wife and I try to watch stuff together, and it never happens. You know, I'm like, you have to wait for me. And, you know, so I was like, I'm going to finish it this week before this panel, which I didn't. But um, I will say that I, I kind of view it the way that, that I, I view maybe other things that I'm not super into, but are gateways to get people into things. And I think it's important as a gateway, not to just the Yellow King, but to weird fiction in general. Um, I mean, there's definitely some some arguable plagiarism in there for um, Ligotti, but it's getting people interested in Ligotti. It's getting people interested in the Yellow King. Um, so I think that it, it holds a lot of value like that. And from what I did see, I mean, like the, the performances are, are wonderful. So um, I do think that it holds some value for increasing awareness of weird, weird fiction in general. Yeah, that's got to be my point. I mean... My point is, well, I did see it, I did enjoy it, I do have the Blu-ray, and I've watched it again. <laughs> um, but there's this one moment. I'm, I'm watching it with my wife, we're, we're into it, great performances, don't really know where it's going, and all of a sudden there's a spiral of birds in the, the murmuration, and they say, you know, the, you know, the king in yellow, my jaw drops. <laughs> And all of my Cthulhu RPG nerds on the internet, the fuck did he say? Did, 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 that, did this really happen? Is this really life? And our community was never the same because, yeah, sure, it's, it, there are plushy Cthulhus and everybody knows Cthulhu. Everybody loves Reanimator. With a, nobody really knew the King in Yellow except the nerds, the hardcore, and now everybody knew the King in Yellow, and I'm like, okay, our community is never going to be the same. We, for me, that was the moment when the greater Cthulhu mythos became mainstream. It was a new birthday for our genre. About for that alone, it's priceless. And it's, it's, it's heartbreaking that you haven't finished it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we can assure Curtis that nothing bad happens to any of the characters he likes. Well, that, that, <laughs> thank you, thank you. That's what I was worried about. After about 30 years ago, right? Uh, yeah, it's my first marriage. Yeah. Uh, I walked into a bookstore in um, Hagerstown, Maryland. Massive bookstore, the size of a Kmart. And I was like, I'm never going to find anything I'm looking for. And I, so some clerk is, can I help you find something? I said, yeah, I'm looking for stuff by Robert W. Chambers. And he says, oh, yeah, we have a whole bunch of shop girl novels by that guy. Oh, because yeah. that's what he, yeah. <laughs> like, there's, there's dozens of shop girl novels. And, you know, 30 years ago, nobody really was paying right. attention in the mainstream to Robert W. Chambers as a weird writer. For, for those of you out there who don't have as much gray hair as most of us, <laughs> back in the day, if you wanted mythos fiction, you had to mail order it. This stuff, I mean, there were there were little houses that they sent you, and, and it was like printed in somebody's bathroom. And like, <laughs> it was stapled together in somebody's spare room, and they'd mail it to you, and that was how we got our mythos fiction. And you had to call and leave a message on a on a tape recorder. <laughs> this, is, this is turning into a Ramsey game. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then, after that, the guy would call you back and say, yes, we have that. Send me a check. Right, yeah. But for us to, to you know, cut our teeth in that and then see it on HBO, yeah. it was like a supernova went off. Yeah, at the moment. 
But just, but just to, to follow up on what, what Pete was saying, if for anyone who's not familiar with Cham the arc of Chambers' career, he after he wrote The King in Yellow, he went on to write primarily historical fiction and shop girl romance because that's what sold. Yeah. He was the yeah. Danielle Steele of his time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I have a feeling if, if The King in Yellow stuff sold, he would have written more of that, but it wasn't what paid the bills at that time. Although he was well off, he probably didn't need to pay the bills by the, writing. The game Yellow sold well enough that he quit his job and became a writer. Yeah. yeah. But it was um, uh, a romance that became his first genuine best-selling novel, and yeah. then he never looked back. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, uh, yeah, I'm not going to say anything more. I think that that's a good uh, place there. Do we have any questions or uh, observations with a question at the end? Um, about uh, Robert W. Chambers. Can you yell about Carcosa? Yes, you. Um, so uh, you did the, uh, the annotation, so I uh, you know the sort of history of popularity of um, There's this Reagan Chandler detective story that in Yellow, where the detective is with Marlowe, uh, references the Chambers movie. So that's made me wonder because you talked about it going in and out of popularity. Was it Chandler um, writes uh, The King and Yellow, the first version, about a different detective. He rewrites the story as Marlowe later. Um, uh, Stephen Grace, I think, is the name of the detective in the first version. Um, and it's about a, uh, a jazz trumpet player, I believe, or saxophone player that's found dead, and he's wearing yellow uh, uh, pajamas. And King Leah Party. And he says, um, uh, the, the King in Yellow, I read a book by that name once, and then he just goes on, and it's a it's a bit. That story came out right after Chambers died, and uh, there had been a republication of The King in Yellow, the original collection, with a uh, forward by Rupert Hughes, who was a relatively well-known uh, literary figure, and there was sort of a, a brief micro-boom of remembering that story. But as against that, when Lovecraft is writing supernatural horror in literature in the 1920s, someone says, oh, you should read The King in Yellow, and they find him a copy, or he gets one from the uh, library, and he reads it, and he's blown away. And he writes to everyone he knows, he said, can you believe Robert W. Chambers wrote Cosmic War? <laughs> it, it's very much your Danielle Steele. It's like if, if suddenly, in one of those uh, things on the in the mall, we found, or in the dealer's room, we found a collection of Danielle Steele's four amazingly good werewolf stories <laughs> from, from 1961, and we'd be like, what? <laughs> well, it's sort of like, okay, so I, I know this, it's like finding out that Dean Koontz wrote porn. <laughs> because he did. And he did a, he did a nonfiction book on swinging. Where he investigated the lifestyle and and published a book about it, but no one ever talks about it. <laughs> it's because it's hard enough to talk about Dean Koontz about swearing, right. much less porn. Yes. Um, so I wonder if that Chandler story is more of the hey, this sounds cool. Let me <laughs> steal did this. Did Chandler do a collection of weird fiction? Didn't he edit? No, uh, Dashiell Hammett. Dashiell Hammett. Okay. Dashiell Hammett edited Creeps by Night, which right. was the first influential horror anthology in America. Right. Um, and so Chandler was, you know, very well read, and his self-image was very much of a literary lion. 
So if Rupert Hughes is saying, read Robert W. Chambers, that's probably why Chandler is reading Robert W. Chambers. Um, and Chandler would have been you know, sure enough of himself to not risk embarrassment by referencing a shop girl romance here when he's <laughs> referring to the King of Yellow. He's like, cool people will recognize what I mean. Yeah. yeah. It, you're right. It's an in-joke for those who know. For everybody else, it's like maybe they'll go do some research. Yeah. But again, nobody has the internet back then. <laughs> and your library, your bookstore probably doesn't know that Chambers wrote this stuff beforehand. Um, the internet has been a boon to researching books, finding books, selling books, um, but stealing books. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, that's that's yes. Who you are. <laughs> uh, it's funny that you brought up the story because I actually include the King Leopardi uh, band in my new novel as a as an author reference. There we go. So the, the snake feeding on its own. Yes. <laughs> All right, do we have any more questions? Yes. Not so much a question of observation. I've noticed with a lot of things in the element of there's this theme of obsession. And the way you mentioned um, that there's all of these like words they just feel but not a description very much kind of leads one to the well on it, which I think kind of feeds back to that theme of obsession. Do you think that's also another form of like say depth of the self, depth of creativity in terms of you? I think that, that obsession is the darkest form of love, and for and, and it's a good observation that it's also an abandonment of self, because you're putting your love of something else above your own well-being. Um, I think that if you know Carcosa represents chaos then neuroatypicalcy, I can't even pronounce that, but being neuroatypical, you know, that descent into badness, it all factors in. Um, so yeah, I think that, that obsession, especially obsession in something beautiful and destructive is essentially, um, you know, the, the blood running through Carcosa's veins. Yeah. yeah, I would agree with that. And it, it goes back to kind of what you were talking about earlier, but the, all the art motif with Carcosa too, because um, as an artist, like I, I know what it's like to become obsessive and like spend like months not doing but, anything that but, I'm supposed to do because I'm working on a novel. Um, yeah. so, um, so it is kind of a death of a self because you're putting this this thing that you're in love with, uh, uh, in, uh, ahead of everything else, ahead of yourself. Um, so yeah, I think that's a really good insight. Yeah, I, I, was, I was just gonna say, I think the Chamber's story, The Yellow Sign, is a great example of that because you've got this artist and model who have sort of this low-level obsession with each other going on, you know, where they're, they're sort of jockeying for what their relationship is going to be. They then become obsessed with the, the, the caretaker at the church, I mean, I hope I'm not spoiling this for anybody, but it was published in 1895, so you had plenty of time. Rolex uh, rules of spoilers is invoked okay. in um, 20 years. Who uh, they describe as a, as a corpse worm. Um, they kind of become obsessed with him, he kind of come, becomes obsessed with them, and then they both wind up becoming obsessed with the King in Yellow, the play. And it's sort of a slow decline that results of all these sort of building obsessions. I think that's a, a really good observation. Yeah. Yeah, it seems to me that uh, what Lynn Parker called the pretended authority is what, uh, what Chambers is doing. 
doing in, in the King and Yellow. With enough snippets to give us enough details, really more than what Lovecraft gives us with the economic that there's enough meat there that can be expanded. Of course, the real, the real play doesn't exist, but enough little outtakes are there. And the prefatory, great little poems at the beginning, the intro, a lot of detail right there in that one. Really, it gives us more than what all the different references to the economic Yes. Yeah, I think James Blish's uh, More Light yeah. is a great example of that. It's like, oh, I'm, yeah, James Blish is like, I'm going to pretend to write the, the King in Yellow, the play, but I'm not going to finish it for you. Ha, 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 because nobody can finish reading the play. It's like, oh, come on, dude, finish it. <laughs> Pierre Comtois finished it. Yes. We're all, we're all good. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a collection or something for the Was that called Adam Yes. I edited that. Preferred people who didn't hear that, um, uh, the name of the collection about the, uh, the Sepia. Uh, uh, it's the idea, okay, so James Paul, or James, sorry, John Paul. Joe Polgett, <laughs> not enough alcohol. We're, this we're is what I need. Names. So, if you have weed, cocaine, or alcohol, you'll see me after. Um, <laughs> if you have all three, see me. <laughs> so, Joe Pulver had this very strict belief that um, he did not want the King and Yellow mythos polluted with Lovecraftian references. He was very, very centralized on that theme in his fiction, um, and I respected that. I wanted to go the opposite direction and create a colored mythos, where the, we had the king in yellow, and I created the sepia prince, an avatar for Cthulhu, and then I, uh, I was approached by a publisher and said, hey, let's just open this up to everybody. And all of a sudden, you know, so we pat out a call, it's like, pick a color, pick a mythos monster, and pick an art, and write us a story. Never ever do this. I got 3,000 <laughs> entries. Oh boy. And I would say 99% of them had nothing to do with <laughs> anything we had said. But you had to read at least two paragraphs to figure that out. Um, but we got, we put together a volume. It, it turned out really, really well. There's some great stories in there. Um, I don't have any copies. <laughs> you can buy them on the internet shortly. You can, yes. yes. They're still a place. What's the name again? The Chromatic Court. Chromatic Court. There's a question over there. Yeah. Um, so, you've already touched on uh, your preferred interpretations of the stuff, but um, there are also different, like, I guess, metaphysical approaches that could be taken. Like, on the one hand, we could say it's it's a city, or they go a bit further and say it's several cities that are all overlapping or anything like that. Or maybe like a little further back, so kind of mythical place that is like almost mythos in or something. And then I get the question. Maybe 
so the question for those who, who couldn't hear it is, uh, given the spectrum of possible loci of Carcosa from city to country to Nimplex to et cetera, uh, do we have a favorite location in that spectrum? Is that a fair resentment? A, a, a personal dumb favorite. Uh, for shits and giggles, I once wrote a Call of Cthulhu Star Frontiers crossover event based on Tartarus. I can never publish it, of course. But it was like one of my shits and giggles projects. So what's, what, what was it? Just wondering, what's the ratio of shit to giggling in that? There's a lot of shit. And basically it starts out that a group of aliens, they're making a space telescope to investigate the legend in their, in their religion that there's a, that there's a star in the sky with a planet as a lake and a city it's an alien ruins where the lord of chaos lives and if you reach the lord of chaos you could, you could petition him for 100 years of peace or 100 years of destruction and it's supposed to be this mythical thing and of course the evil race takes control of the space telescope finds out that there's actually this planet and they're racing there and now the players have to race there in their ship to try and get to this planet first. And it's all Star Frontiers and everybody's having a good time. And then I break out the hex map and somebody goes, are we fucking doing a hex map? And they said, we're fucking doing a hex map. We do ship to ship combat. Everybody's having a good time. They board the pirate cultist ship. Um, and then the corpses start coming to life. They start seeing, you know, Bayaki attack the ship. And they said, oh, we're going to Star Frontiers Call of Cthulhu crossover, man. So we basically have Space Marines you know, landing in Carcosa. <laughs> um, and, and trying to defeat, they're trying to beat the Sathar cultists to the King in Yellow so they can ask for the secret weapon. Um, are you ever, I never done shrooms, but you wouldn't know it from somebody. <laughs> And I don't own the I don't own a right to produce anything by TSR, so I can never do my Star Frontiers crossover. Uh, Star Frontiers calling you the crossover event. But, the Star Frontiers community is even more fractured and vicious than the Call of Cthulhu community. I write for a Star Frontiers fanzine every once in a while. I, I don't want to be part of that argument. <laughs> there's, some, there's some Star Frontier shit going down. You wouldn't believe it for a game that's been dead for 40 years. But yeah. there's, some, there's some shit going down. Speaking of obsessed with the dead. Yeah, yeah, obsessed with the dead. There are Star Frontier, there's a Star Frontier fanzines out there. That's obsession with the dead. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm partial to, I guess, as Ken described it, the memeplex or the memetic sort of view of Carcosa. And I think that's because the, the King in Yellow as a play is such a central part of it. It's, so, you know, these ideas are entering our world. You read this and it, you lose your mind. You, it ch utterly changes your perception of reality. So why is that? And so I've always liked that kind of Carcosa as, um, you know, a place of ideas and a place of uh, perspective that is different than the rest of the, the universe and um, probably would would really, you know, be difficult for your space marines to <laughs> to shoot up. Right, right. So, they were um, completely under the Yeah, so mine's not nearly as exciting as Oscar's, but... <laughs> Mine, I, I always think of it more is a, is a concept than is a is a real place it's something that exists outside of existence um so almost 
within the mind. Um, you know, a lot of the fiction I write is kind of ambiguous, whether it's supernatural or psychological or whatnot anyway. So I like not giving straight answers, I guess. Um, so I like the idea of Carcosa as this kind of nebulous thing that is not fully explained. Uh, honestly, I, what I really love is, and I, I, it's the simplest story because everyone does it. It's the, somebody decides to put on a play of the King in Yellow and the audience goes insane. I, it's, I, I think there's like 12 versions of this story, but it gets me every time. It gets me every time because you know, people, yeah, like there's one where like it's an elementary school that puts on. And it's just like the parents are at, at each other's throats and there's the woman who's eating her husband's throat, you know, apart. And it's just, it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> Because I harken back to the, the, uh, to the Jerry, mm -hmm. and when they put on Ubu Roy in Paris for the first time, the audience goes crazy, rips seats out of the out of the, of the floor, throws them around, and is it Tennyson or, or Longfellow or, or one of the, one of our big poets is there and he says, "This is it. This is the end of civilization as we know it." It's not Tennyson or Longfellow, both of them are dead. Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to remember who. Whitman, maybe? No. No? All right. Thanks. I got to remember. You know Some... the title of that elementary school one. Mm -hmm. I've got quality time. What was it? Quality time. Quality time, yes. Quality time. Oh, okay. Um, uh, Robin Laws, my beloved confrere on the podcast, Kevin Robin, talk about stuff, would kill me if I did not take this opportunity to plug his game, Yellow King, the role-playing game. Um, because uh, his notion of Carcosa is uh, of the expression of unreality. The, the, it, for, for Robin, the core of Repair of Reputations, the core of Court of the uh, Dragon, all the stories, is reality horror. It's one thing is true on one level, another thing is true on a deeply personal level, which ties into the obsession and the monomania stuff, and forcing them together causes disaster. And the, you know, the mad universe of repair of reputations that is probably all delusional, um, versus the real world of 1895 New York where he's running around and there are no suicide booths. And lots of other, you know, uh, uh, Riffs on that, Robin sees Carcosa um, as literally the interface between realities. It's not, you know, a planet or a city or a dimension or a, uh, or a god realm or whatever. And he uh, sort of hangs a lantern on that when he, in the first book of uh, the LK role playing game, he says, what is Carcosa? And he lists all those as possibilities and then he just goes on. Um, and so the implication is whatever it is, it's the source of the energy that makes, you know, weird, fun role playing magic happen and causes this sort of slipstream between realities. But what it is, I mean, the whole fun uh, is that you can't know that because you can't, you know, you know, you think uh, quantum mechanics are hard. Uh, Carcosa quantum mechanics are really hard. <laughs> you, can't, um, you, you can't resolve what Carcosa is. And so in, in many ways, although I'm personally uh, in love with Carcosa as a city, just because that's how Chambers describes it, I am more than open to all the other Carcosas, and I do love the Memeplex one. But Robin would say Carcosa is the 
actually is the energy wave or the propagation from Carcosa, that we don't know what Carcosa is. It's a black box. We only see its effects. If I could throw out one hidden gem of, of, of Carcosa stuff, um, uh, who here knows the podcast Archive 81? Yes. There's a, I think it's between season two and three, there's a two-part episode called The Wing Beats Over America, and it's a found footage of radio recordings, and it's uh, an audio play that they're going to put on the radio, and the producer had gone to Paris to make an inspiration, and he finds this script, and it's a sealed script that you know, only open it, and there are four players, um, and they, they're practicing, like the first episode is them practicing it, and then the second episode is them broadcasting it, and it's, again, it's found, but it is so in line with everything that's wonderful, the, the, the chaos and the mystery and the art and the music, and there's a concept that stories are, uh, that music and stories are like one of the same, like one in the same thing, um, and reality starts to kind of come apart the deeper they get into the play. Um, you know, fix yourself a cup of hot cocoa, find that podcast, <laughs> play it back to back, you will not be disappointed. It is one of the most delicious, called call it Cthulhu, Cthulhu, you know, Carcosan things you're ever going to say. Or here, it, it's a podcast. <laughs> so a couple years ago, Ken took me to task because somebody was asking for one of my books and I just didn't make the sale. And he's like, Pete, every time someone talks to you, you should sell that book, sell that book, sell that book three times. And he's right. So I would be remiss if I don't take this opportunity because you brought up repair of reputations and, and the, the, the suicide chambers is that um, a couple years ago after Joe passed, I wrote a story um, that is a direct sequel to the Repair of Reputations, and it was bought and paid for for an anthology that now appears to have gone bust. Oh. And um, so that hurts. That hurts. Um, but I'm going to read that story Sunday morning. There we go. And it is a direct Good sequel to the Repair of Reputations. Sunday morning. When will you be reading that? Sunday morning. What, what time? <laughs> oh, we're so close. Oh, no, we're no, so no, close. He'll be reading that all morning. So all, morning. all morning. Hold on. Wherever you see him, he'll be reading that story. Nine thirty author readings in the Narragansett. There we are. Yes. All right. Archive eighty-one. Archive eighty-one. Archive anyone. So, do you guys distinguish between the King in Yellow and Pastor? And if so, how? Uh, do, do we distinguish between the King in Yellow and Haster? And if so, mm. how? Uh, Haster's got uh, Haster has a lot of avatars uh, in the game. There's the boneless one. There's that weird space clam one. Um, there's, there's, that's that's there, what it's called. There's, there's, there's an octopus one, there's a, it, and then there's the king in the yellow. The king in the yellow is like the least offensive of all of them. Um, but the most offensive of all of them. To me, there are two kinds of great old ones. The great old ones that you stumble into them, you're screwed. And then there's the great old ones that come and fuck with you. 
Those are mainly the Ramsey Campbell guys, but King and Yellow is one of those guys who will fuck with you. So you could be doing nothing and the King and Yellow decide he's gonna fuck with you. All the other ones, you've gotta go looking for them. So it's, it's, it's not more dangerous per se, but there's, it, it, you're way more likely to r- run into one. It's malevolent. It's malevolent. It, 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 it wants has to a hurt reason. You. And if we're plugging stuff, uh, in the dealer's room, uh, my company's collection, my uh, Tales of the Crescent City, has a updated reprint of Have You Seen the Yellow Sign? And the direct sequel to it written by Kevin Lewis. Thanks for reminding me to plug my business. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Grandpa. Yeah. Um, I think in, in Chambers' work, Castor is a place, right? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm on the same wavelength that Joe Pulver was on. Yeah. The Carcosa King and Yellow mythos has the legs to stand on its own. It doesn't need to be blended into the, the Lovecraft mythos or any other mythos. There's a lot there. We, we haven't really mined it as much as it could be. There's still exploration to do. So for me, it's it's very easy. Anything outside of the Chamber's work, Haster is a completely different entity unrelated to the place Haster or the King in Yellow. Yeah, I'm of the same mind as Jim. and. Um for me, as a writer, at least if I'm writing prestige, I generally go back to the original source. I'm not going to write, build upon what August Derleth did or like build upon like what Pete did. You know, I'm going to go back to the original source. Um, so I kind of separate the, the Lovecraftian idea of Haster from the King in Yellow. I mean, uh, if you go all the way back to the original source, of course, Haster is invented by Pierce in the story Aida the Shepherd, and he's the god of shepherds. That's and, not as fun. Um, he, uh, he is susceptible to blackmail. Haida um, <laughs> says, you know, if you don't, um, I forget, send the rain, I think it is, um, I'm just going to stop worshiping you, and you're going to look like a, like a, like a simp. And <laughs> Aster, you know, backs down, and he says, all right, I get it. And he um, uh, sends the rain, and then he sends um, the girl who was happiness to destroy his life, which I think is a very Beersian touch. Mm-hmm. But it's a whole different Haster from even the Chambers Haster, which, as you say, is either a place or possibly a lineage. There's a character named Haster in Demizaldis, but it's just like his name is Jerome. There's no real significance <laughs> yeah, yeah. to it. Um, and, and so uh, uh, Haster is, 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 a, is, is a place, you could argue that it is like um, Rome. It is both a place and the spirit of the lineage, mm-hmm. um, that there's a legitimacy to Haster, that, that it's by the right of Haster that uh, uh, Louis Castaigne claims the throne. Um, and then, of course, Lovecraft says uh, uh, that the, those opposed to the Migo are associated in some way with Haster and the cult of the yellow sign. But Lovecraft does not say Haster's a god. It could be a place. When he lists all those places, he's, he's got, you know, Lake of Holly and Beth Mora and Haster. He doesn't say Haster is a god, Beth Mora is a city. He just yeah. lists all that stuff. Often then Durleth comes up with the Haster is Cthulhu's cousin. <laughs> Why did we run with Haster and let, let Beth Mora sit on the table? Well, because Beth Mora was um, uh, Dunsany. Right? Yeah. So it, it, we felt like it was done. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Beth Moore is another abandoned city, so it's just Carcosa, but you know, across the river. <laughs> it's the Buddha, it's the pest to Carcosa's Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> so you remember that scene in Ghostbusters where, there, where it, uh, Annie Paz is hiring Winston? It's like, do you believe in Atlantis reincarnation, ESB? All this is like, like Winston's like, 
if there's a paycheck in it, I'll believe whatever you want me to do. <laughs> That's my Carcosa. <laughs> whatever the editor is looking for this week is what I'll write. And you know, like so I get I get these requests and you know not particularly for Yellow Sign or King and Yellow stories, but it's like yeah, um, we have a 5,000 word hole in this anthology and the writer that we hired didn't produce. Can you write us a story in three days? And I'm like, it's, does it have to be a good story? <laughs> and well, that, that, I'm one of his publishers. He does deliver very quickly and they're almost always good stories. Oh, I like the almost always. Almost always, right? I've only printed the good ones. I, I understand you that. You never said me a bad one. I, I try not to. Uh, <laughs> but Pete, that's a very Chambersian perspective. It is. Where's the money? Well, yeah. Well, well, Living up to the great uh, icon that was Robert W. Anderson. <laughs> uh, we have time, I think, for one last really good question. You in the back. Hi. Um, What's the podcast again? Malevolent. 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 Yes. Um, it started about a year ago. It's like one guy doing all the voices, and he allows his audience to pick some of the choices, which, I mean, that could be a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> um, he deals with games of grief of redemption from the perspective of somebody who's been touched by the King Yellow. And also, there's this kind of weird and deep rock venom style romance that happens. I've heard of the podcast, it's on my list. Uh, the old gods of Appalachia crew are recommending that highly, and I'm you know, yeah. a member of the family, so <laughs> yeah. uh, it's on my podcast yeah. list. And it is being distributed by Rusty Club right now. So. Right, so yeah, I, it's on my list. I gotta get to it. Anyone else have any thoughts on Malevolent of the podcast? I have sounds cool. to it. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds sound cool. All right, uh, that was actually a much shorter question than I thought. Do we have another? Uh, <laughs> Uh, I want to do someone who hasn't asked, yeah. but if, yeah. Uh, so, uh, to kind of get off of mentioning the podcast that originally went heavily on Corcosa, it was a, a podcast in 2018 called Tone Detentive, that was an actual play. And it was pretty much a group of performers that were doing the, uh, the play, and they got transported to Corcosa while they were doing it. And that's what happened. Yeah. So, <laughs> the question is for, uh, their particular version of Corcosa was very much one mired in decadence and more of unrestricted artistry and obsession, where everybody was endlessly chasing their music and never really do it. And the player kind of just interacting with every random person and getting Corcosa that was stuck there for that thing. So, my question is what do you guys think about the theme of decadence and unrestricted freedom to do whatever you want and have a Corcosa beat? <clears throat> Decadence and unrestricted freedom, artistic and one assumes otherwise, as a Carcosan theme. 
Well, I think it ties in with the whole idea of, of nobility and royalty. You, know, you have this um, this wealth and this freedom to to kind of do you know wonderful, beautiful, if idle things, um, and you know there's that whole thing that. Um, you know, easy times lead to weak men and hard times, lead, you know, such things. So I think that an overabundance of ease can lead to ruin, um, which is a very Carcosan thing. Yeah, I have a similarity with like the video game Miles Like, mm-hmm. you just down there and you've got no restrictions, mm-hmm. whatever the hell you want. Way too damn far. That's, that's the whole human nature. If we could do, if humans could do everything we wanted, would it be a utopia or would it be a dystopia? Yeah. And I will say, like, my I went to a trade school in high school. I learned how to do plumbing. I did that for a while, and now like this useful thing that helps people. And I was like, no, I'm going to write horror stories. Like, you know. Um, so I think that there is something to be said for if everybody, if everybody's just trying to be an artist, society will collapse, kind of thing. So. Um, I do want to mention that decadence is absolutely one of the core thematic elements of the of the book, uh, The King in Yellow, that uh, Chambers wrote. He wrote it during the, literally during the wave of decadence in French art. The, the journal Decadent is published literally while he's in Paris only. So he exactly brackets it. And Chambers, uh, this will surprise no one, was a uh, upper middle class American bourgeois guy who believed in hunting and fishing and nature and true love and the opposite of decadence in every way. And he, I mean, he thought impressionists were weird and dangerous. <laughs> and that was, even when he was painting, that was a little bit of an old fogey attitude. So uh, for Chambers, all of that concern is tied in, I argue, with uh, the vast prevalence of syphilis in the artistic community in Paris in the 1890s, to wit, Guy de Maupassant, the short story writer, who much of the stories in King and Yellow are reflective of, uh, died of syphilis in 1893, which is the year that uh, Chambers left Paris. Chambers almost certainly ate lunch across from Guy de Maupassant, right? Um, he sees this guy, and he's friends with a lot of these other artists, Ernest Dowson, lots of other people who, to put it mildly, um, uh, do not pass the talk screen. And um, he knows from firsthand experience what being unrestrained does. It literally puts spirochetes in your brain and kills you. And so the fear of that, because the attraction of staying out all night with uh, ladies of ill character and other things is so great that it's that, that tension again between Eros and Thanatos, between love and death, that drives so much of the story. And the decadence by breaking down the boundaries between love and death is exceptionally dangerous. That Carcosa, in this sense, is a minefield, really. Um, and so that's a absolutely straight down the line reading of Chambers, I think, and entirely justifiable. Nowadays, with you know penicillin and other fancy stuff, <laughs> uh, we don't have the same you know um, uh, 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 terrifying fear. I mean, you know, monkeypox is making a good run, but it's not <laughs> in Florida. Yeah, well, obviously, yeah. Um, uh, but it's it's very masked with the red death, just yeah, on yes. steroids, right? Yeah, right. Um, so, so uh, I guess my, my my closing thought is yes, um, that that is correct. That anyone who believes. Uh, strongly enough in their vision of Carcosa is probably right, that there's lots of roads uh, to Carcosa 
that uh, four of the best walkers down those roads are here, and I wish everyone would give them a rousing round of applause. <laughs> This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop Broadcast Network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.